You're listening to the Mindful Psychology Podcast, a podcast designed to explore mindfulness, psychology, neuroscience, and various aspects of holistic health. My name is Jen. I'm your host. I'm also a therapist, an educator, and a yoga teacher. Join me and brilliant guests as we explore various topics and offer you actionable steps so that you can be informed and intentional about your health and well-being. Now sit back, relax, maybe take a notebook out, and let's dive in. everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Mindful Psychology Podcast. My name is Jen, I'm your host and today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Carrie Jackson. Carrie, uh, Dr. Carrie, why don't you dive in straight away to who you are and uh, what you do and all of that stuff. I don't want to uh, delay it any further, so go ahead. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast episode. So my name is Dr. Carrie Jackson, and I am a postdoctoral psychology fellow. So what that means is that I have my PhD in child psychology, and I am currently finishing up the requirements to become a licensed child psychologist, which should be happening uh, very soon as we're recording this episode, I actually passed my licensing exam just a few days ago. So yeah. lots of exciting things. Mm-hmm. And right now what I do is I work at a children's hospital where I see kids, um, teenagers, and work with their families for a variety of mental health concerns. And I also do evaluations for things like ADHD and learning disorders. So uh, I have an Instagram, which is at the parent therapist, where I really focus on sharing information to parents of kids with ADHD about how to be the best parents. So I know that we'll be talking a lot about parenting today. So I am just excited for us to chat about this you know, topic. Yeah, same here. Well, congratulations again for your accomplishment and for all the things that you have going on. Um, We'll we'll be touching on those things too throughout the episode, but I'm so excited for this talk. And uh, even when we talked off air, I found all all the things that you talked about really interesting. So why don't we get into some of that? Uh, Why don't you tell everyone what you do, how you got into the work that that you're in? Yes. So uh, (laughs) this is I think that this is um, an interesting story. One of my favorite therapy stories, like what therapist stories, yeah. I know, yes. (laughs) I love hearing about how therapists get into what they do. And a lot of the times I do find that it is based on their own experience. So for me, as a kid, I was the opposite of how I would say I am today, where I had a lot of difficulties with being really defiant a lot of really intense emotions where I did not know how to handle myself. And one of my most vivid memories from childhood is I remember actually having my A Bug's Life alarm clock. Do you know the movie A Bug's Life by Pixar? Yes. So I had that and I was mad at my parents for some reason. This was when I was probably like six years old. And I remember I just threw the clock into the banister and I broke it. And then I was upset and even more mad because I broke my clock at the same time. So anyway, long story, but I got into the area of child psychology because I wanted to help parents of kids that were similar to me when I was little, where, you know, helping parents figure out how to help kids who have these emotion regulation difficulties and these intense behaviors. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I mean, I, I, these emotion, what would you characterize as emotionally regulating uh, disorders? Yeah, so um, there are a few that are in the uh, diagnostic manual that I use, um, but they can be really central to a lot of different disorders. So things like ADHD in particular, they have ADHD has such difficulties with uh, regulating emotions. And when I say regulating emotions, what I really mean is first identifying your emotions that you have when you haven't. And then when you have those intense, challenging emotions, knowing what you should do with them. Mm-hmm. So ADHD, and then also oppositional defiant disorder, uh, which is a disorder where kids They are defiant, have trouble following directions, and it can result in extreme tantrums and um, some mood issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, really interesting. And what what is the link? Like, why does the ADHD like prevent the child from being able to regulate their emotions? That is a great question, and I feel like emotion is just not talked about in the area of ADHD, but. Emotion regulation is actually an executive functioning skill. And kids with ADHD have trouble with executive functioning skills because these are skills that develop into your late 20s even. And um, they're linked to the part of your brain that is in the frontal lobe. And that is also the last piece of your brain to develop. And for kids with ADHD, they're... um, development of those skills is further behind than kids who do not have ADHD. And so that's, it's really is a biological basis for why kids do have trouble regulating their emotions. And I think that piece is so important for people to understand that it's not on purpose. It is something different in their brains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point as well. Um, And just in case the listeners are not familiar with ADHD, what is ADHD? Yes. So thank you for reminding me because I always, I know I forget sometimes to like break it down. Um, So ADHD, it is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And some people will refer to it as ADD. Some people refer to it as ADHD, but it all fits under this umbrella where it is a mental health disorder where kids, they have trouble with regulating their attention. So they may have trouble focusing on the things they are supposed to focus on and, or they may have trouble also with more impulsive symptoms. So doing things like getting out of their seat, um, getting, you know, interrupting others. And what we know is that these symptoms are typically present when kids are younger, but they will stay with them oftentimes throughout teen years and even into the adult years as well. That's interesting. And is there a difference between ADD and ADHD or is that just something people call it? So I think that in the past there actually was a difference, but right now it's all under the umbrella of ADHD, but you can have predominantly an attentive presentation, which means you see more, um, you have more of those difficulties with distractibility, which is what ADD was focused on. Mm-hmm. But now they're really just under the same umbrella term. And I think they did that because we know that even if a kid presents initially as being more inattentive, that can change throughout their life where they may actually become more hyperactive or look more hyperactive to um, other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. 
And, yeah. And what, so I know a lot of people talk about how there's more, or children are becoming more um, hyperactive, right? In as they, as they, as time goes, you hear a lot of people talk about that. And would you say that it's that we've noticed it more or that there's an actual shift in the way that children are, are growing up or behaving? Well, so I was going to ask you who, where do you typically see that coming from where people will say ADHD is overdiagnosed? Like what type of, what, um, what people and who do you typically see that from? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question, actually. (laughs) Um, So actually I spent several years teaching before I was a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so I was a academic tutor, but I also worked at a tutoring company. I worked alongside a lot of teachers as well, like school teachers and did different interning at uh, like a school that specialized in children who had autism, but I also worked with like a special needs education or just even um, like different areas of special education in schools and talked to different teachers. And they often said that kids were hyperactive or that, you know, if they were just a little bit different or a little bit, uh, I just found that I, I personally found they were overdiagnosed. Like I thought that, you know, every kid had ADHD and every kid was autistic and every kid had, and I, I thought, okay, is this actually happening? Are we actually noticing this? Or are they behaving differently or are we not informed enough and educated enough about this stuff? And so we just assume if they're a little bit different, that it's one of those things. So that's where my yeah. confusion began at the time. Um, and then of yeah, course it's and- not my area of expertise now, but um, not that it never was, but it's not my area of expertise now. And so that's why I'm curious. Yeah. And also like being in those types of settings, you're probably going to see more kids with those types of concerns in general, which makes it harder to tease out what's really ADHD versus what mm-hmm. isn't. Yeah. So for me, I have sort of mixed uh, ideas about it. I do think that we are getting better at diagnosing it and picking up on it. And because of that, I do think that um, there has been an accurate increase in the rates of ADHD that we are seeing because mm-hmm. um, there have actually been some research studies that have shown that it does seem to be due to a lot um, better accuracy in our diagnoses of certain uh certain disorders where we're able to tell whether or not something is truly ADHD or not. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, I do think that having an ADHD diagnosis can require, you know, a good assessment from someone who is trained like a psychologist um, or a psychiatrist to be really accurate. And so I have had some experiences where, I will get referrals where the kid um, is presumed to have ADHD by someone. It could be a teacher, it could be someone else. And then when I look at everything, what I see is actually this is not ADHD, but it's typical child behavior. Um, And so I do think that for some people, like being inaccurately diagnosed, that can be an issue. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think we see that throughout different aspects of psychology as well, right? This idea of like pathologizing very normal, quote unquote, normal behaviors that like everything has to be a diagnosis. It must be this. It must be that. Um, Now that we have this information out there, it's almost like misused, I find. Yeah. Yeah. And kids have like kids attention spans. It is not long. Right. Even at at best, quote again, quote unquote, at best, it's never going to be stellar. Like it's super rare. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when kids are 
around seven years old, they typically are still only focusing on something for around 15 minutes at a time. And so a lot of the times it can be typical behavior. Um, but when, when kids are in school, a lot of the times you can start to notice the differences based on who is really struggling with like their schoolwork or social interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's when you'll be able to tell more of a difference between what is uh, typical versus slightly um, different and maybe concerning for ADHD. Yeah. Okay. And that would be my next question. What are some signs Like, what are some things that parents should look out for or even teachers maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Well, teachers honestly are one of the biggest um, uh, like sources who can start to notice like when a kid might have ADHD, at least in my experience. So kids are typically diagnosed with ADHD at seven years old. That's the most common age that they get diagnosed. And a big reason for that is because that is when they are in school. And that's also when there is more of a demand on the schoolwork they are doing because Mm -hmm. before that they were actually doing, you know, some easier stuff, but around first and second grade, it gets to be much more tough. So typically parents, they will start to get calls from their teacher where the teacher may say, you know, he is having trouble with disrupting the class. He speaks out of turn. He will get out of his seat when he's not supposed to, or he's constantly distracted, daydreaming. You'll start to notice um, that those types of answers from teachers. And what's helpful is like teachers have classrooms of 20, 25 people. So a lot of the times I think that teachers can really tell when there is a difference between students, which for me, um, doing these evaluations is very helpful because we do seek a lot of teacher input on what is this child like compared to other kids in your class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's make, that makes sense. And yeah. then when you're, let's say you're giving parents some advice on how to handle this, would your advice vary depending on whether they have ADHD or whether they have uh, similar symptoms, but it's that it's very normal child behavior, would you have very different sets of, of tools for them or does it, is there a lot of overlap? Well, one of the best things that I find about working with parents of kids with ADHD is that the skills that I teach parents, they are helpful for any kid. Yeah. So that is, I think a huge benefit because when I see families, they often don't just have one kid, you know, it's Mm -hmm. typically they'll have siblings or maybe they um, have other close family members who they may be helping take care of their kids. And so we work on what we call specialized skills for parenting ADHD, but those skills can be helpful for parents of any kid, which I think is such a huge benefit for those parents because you're learning really specialized skills. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And what about the second disorder that you had mentioned um, before we focused on ADHD? I'd like to- yeah. Oppositional defiant disorder, that one. <laughs> Yes. Um, It is actually treated very similarly to ADHD. There are a few differences, but honestly, for the most part, they are both really parent-focused skills. And so like with ADHD, there is medication that can be prescribed for it. Um, For oppositional defiant disorder, there is not. So both of those disorders are... um, 
the behavioral intervention and the therapy intervention is focused on giving parents skills. And for ADHD medications, they can typically help kids um, with like focusing and also reducing some of their hyperactive symptoms. But even after that medication does have that effect on those ADHD symptoms, there's typically still left over some difficulties in the parent-child relationship. And that is really why therapy focuses a lot on working with parents so that they can have a better relationship with their kids and also, you know, learn some skills that will help them feel less stressed out and help their kids do the best they can. Totally. Yeah. And, and if some parents are wondering what some of those tips are, <laughs> I, know, I know that that's a big question, but are there any that spring to mind? It is a big question, but I, you know, there are tips that you can give parents that I think go a long way. And one of my favorite skills that I usually work on teaching parents is using very specific praise, because this is a skill that requires, you know, no money, no really little energy, and you can do it very frequently. Um, So when I say praise, I'm talking about verbal praise, telling a child what you like that they did. And usually parents, they will say, oh yeah, I praise my kid all the time. I tell them, good job. Thank you. Those praises are great. They definitely help kids, but we can make them even better by telling them exactly what we like that they did. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying something like, good job, you could say, oh, good job listening to me the first time I told you to do something. And because of that, kids, especially kids with ADHD, they will start to pick up on exactly what they should be doing more of. And it is the most effective skill for parents of kids with ADHD. So it's the first one that I go to. I love that. I really do, actually. (laughs) I mean, like as adults, we love praise too. Like I like being told I'm doing a good job. So I think it makes sense to a lot of parents too, why their kids like it as well. But especially when we're told what exactly it is, right? I actually could relate to that. Like if I just think it's in general, then I'm not sure what it is. And I could think that it's one of the things that I do that you don't actually like, right? Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) telling me I'm just like okay so you just in general it's great like (laughs) is there anything specific you know like something that you don't like so I can relate to that I don't think we always think about that we're just happy to get praise like you said which of course is is lovely but it's always nice to get some specific praise I think even as adults I like that yeah and it's the same thing for like feedback like if I get really vague feedback on like oh you should do better the next time it's like well what should I do better with (laughs) That was always troubling. And that's so true. That one really always got to me. Like, mm-hmm. just, you know, next time a little bit better, right? And I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so. I'm not really sure it, what you mean. <laughs> not at all. I don't know what it means. And like, as much as, you know, the positive pieces of good praise, like, good job, as much as it makes me feel good, it still does not tell me what I have done a good job with. And I think that most people, they do want to know what they can do even better so that they can continue to get that praise and they can also feel good about themselves. So it's super important for kids to know what they um, should be doing. And also like kids don't know, like, I think that there is a misconception that kids automatically know how they should behave and what they should do, but that is just not true. Kids are taught what they should do 
by their parents and by teachers, by others. And praise is a way that we actually teach kids what we want them to do. Yeah, no, that's so true. That's a really important piece for Mm -hmm. sure. And what about if there was something, so we talked about the praise, but what about the opposite? Like what word would you use for that? (laughs) What if you have to kind of correct something? How is, what's a healthy way of doing that? So I think being specific um, and also a lot of the times with corrections, parents think about what they don't want their kids to do. So most parents will say, don't hit uh, or stop running. And that definitely teaches kids what they should not be doing, but it also doesn't teach them what they should be doing. So Mm -hmm. if you tell a kid, stop hitting, and then they start kicking, I mean, technically they did exactly what you told them to do, right? So, you know, making sure that you tell them what you want them to do instead. So instead of like, stop hitting, you did say, please keep your hands to yourself. And that tells kids exactly what they should be doing. And then as soon as they stop hitting, you can praise them for that. Yeah, that's amazing. And then what about for emotional regulation? Again, I know it's a loaded question, but if if it was something more in that realm, um, how could a parent go about helping their child learn to emotionally regulate? Yeah, so emotion regulation skills are pretty fun because you can actually incorporate them multiple times throughout the day. Uh, Emotions are all around kids and they are really present in a lot of things that kids are reading, watching movies. And so as parents, what you can do is you can start to label emotions in like different characters you see on TV or even in play with kids. You can say things like, oh, your toy looks like he's sad because he was left out of playing kids will not be able to regulate their emotions until they can start to identify them. And kids, even when they are young, you know, like three, four years old, they're starting to be able to understand different types of emotions. Um, And so I think that labeling those emotions as parents is a huge skill. That's really great. I like that a lot, actually. That was really, I mean, I've loved everything you said, but I really like that one. Yeah. And it's, it's so overlooked. Like I think back at times that I've experienced people talking to their kids, like parents talking to their kids, or like I have a lot of nieces and nephews in so many ways that I'm never sure how to speak to them, right? As, mm-hmm. a, as an aunt, I'm never sure what to say. Like, I don't want to reinforce the wrong thing or like introduce the wrong thing or, you know what I mean? Or, or, or not talk to, like not speak to certain things, right? And so I'm always very careful because, you know, you can have such an impact on children, right? And so yeah. I'm so mindful about the way I speak to kids or even my students at the time. Just, I don't know. I'm always thinking about these things more, but this is really helpful. And there's a lot of, I think, pressure on parents to feel like they are doing the right thing. And um, I think that there really is no 100% right way to do things. There are definitely skills that can be helpful, but it's not always that you're doing something wrong, but that's something I hear from parents all the time is like a questioning of what they are doing. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. what, what do you, what would you say to somebody who might be thinking that right now listening? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, thinking about like what your values are as a parent is the first piece. And I think that so many parents, they don't ever really, you know, think about what is actually important to them as a parent. They might have just read a book about how they're supposed to parent and, you know, take some of those skills, which it isn't a bad thing, but it's really looking at internally, what are 
your values as a parent? And how can you make sure that your actions line up with your values as a parent? Because that is when you'll feel the most um, confident as a parent. And you'll also feel like you are parenting in the way that you want to parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like that a lot. Yeah. I'm all about living like a values driven life. And I do think that carries over into parenting as well. Yeah, definitely. And then I actually did have one more question, but I didn't want to forget to ask you when it comes (laughs) to boundaries, how would, how could you teach children that in in what you've seen and what you've observed in, in the work that you do? So this is a, a great question because my favorite way to teach kids about boundaries is actually through the parents modeling their own boundaries because I have found over and over again that parents, they, um, they really instill boundaries into their kids by how they respond. And, you know, parenting, like kids will push your boundaries. They will say, no, they will try and get you to bend on your boundaries a lot of times. And that can be hard for parents And, you know, to teach your kid boundaries, setting limits at times, it's a good thing. And you are really teaching your kid the importance of boundaries by setting those limits. And, you know, parents are often worried about setting boundaries with their kids because they're worried their kid will have a negative reaction. And for parents who are feeling that way, I think it's important to explore how they look at boundaries throughout their life because, more often than not, they will probably have similar views of boundaries with romantic relationships, friends, and work, where they may also have trouble setting those boundaries that way. Um, So that's definitely a huge piece of teaching kids how to set boundaries. It's just by the parents setting those boundaries with the kid themselves. Wow. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I love that (laughs) very much. I like that. And um, and if anybody wants to find you and connect with you uh, in some way. I also forgot to ask where you were located in case there's anybody who's in your location, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so I will, so right now I am in Ohio working at a children's hospital, but I will actually be moving to California in August, um, which I am very excited about because that is where I was living a year ago also. Um, And so that's where I'll be starting my own private practice. So I am super excited um, to be returning there. I am not a cold weather person at all. (laughs) (laughs) I know we talked about that already, though. (laughs) Yeah, we did. And that you're from Carolina. So you're really, you're you're not about the cold weather at all. (laughs) No, I did graduate school in West Virginia, which was also really cold. And I should have learned my lesson that I do not need to live in anywhere cold ever again. (laughs) I agree. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I, 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 I feel like my body just shuts down when it's, yes, it's, I mean, it is really uncomfortable to be outside in the cold and I am all about getting outdoors. So I need somewhere where the weather is nice. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel that. Um, so, okay, that's good. Then I'll put that in the show notes. I mean, the, the fact that you're going to be in, in California and then if people want to find you on social media, uh, if they want to find your podcast, which you can talk about too, <laughs> and if they want to find your website, all of that stuff, I'll add those to the show notes, but can you just highlight those things for us? Yes. So I am on Instagram. It's at the dot parent dot therapist. Um, and I also have a website, which is drcarriejackson.com. And I also just started a podcast with my friend Erica, where we talk about normalizing mental health issues 
Um, and the title of the podcast is Therapists Who Brunch because we both love um, brunch and we l- want to destigmatize mental health issues by talking about them as if you were talking about them with a friend over brunch. So um, yeah, go check it out. We've got a few episodes up. That's brilliant. Great. Thank you so much. And I would just want to thank you again so much for taking the time today and for this really great conversation. It was so, it was so wonderful. I loved it. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.